everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking to Justin Searles. Justin was on episode 38. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Uh, 2012, uh, talking about Jasmine. And then episode 226, talking about test doubles. And I think, if I remember right, you blew a few people's minds on the show. <laughs> just talking about some of the things you could do with test doubles, which was really cool. Um, I also know that you run a an agency called Test Double. Yeah, there's there's no confusion or ambiguity there, is there? <laughs> nope, none at all. Um, and then you've also, you know, authored some libraries and stuff that we have talked to you about on the show. Is there anything else that people ought to know about you that I didn't mention? Well, you know, um, I follow a particular kind of career path that I think is pretty common for anyone who's been in the industry for over a decade, right? You know, I started doing a lot of Java and PHP, and then I found the Ruby on Rails community about 10, 11 years ago. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, if I, if I went off the rails at any point, it was probably 2010, 2011, I started to get really serious about applying the same level of craft to my JavaScript that other people were starting to take seriously about their backend code. Um, and so, my my role, to the extent that I have one in the JavaScript community, might seem to be a little bit of a curmudgeon, always advocating better testing or more careful, you know, design of our code. Um, but but really, what I'm trying to do and the mission that I'm on is to help everyone succeed at just fixing and improving the quality of the software that we write. And a big way that uh, I can offer to help in that is take some of the lessons that we learned from like the Agile community. Uh, or, or back, you know, in, in, in the sorts of books like with those Martin Fowler seal of, of approval stamps in the early 2000s and figure out how to translate that for, you know, a quote unquote modern uh, uh, audience who are doing, you know, mostly JavaScript and whether it's front end or, or back end with Node.js. Right. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot to dig in there and I, and I really want to. Um, but let's let's back way, 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 way up. Um, I sent you the questions ahead of time, and I really want to see what your answers are to some of these, just just to kind of capture the story and the feeling and the, you know, what was it like to be Justin way back when? So, oh, my goodness. Um, so the first question is, how did you get into programming? This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So the first question is, how did you get into programming? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, it found me in a funny way. I was on a Northwest flight when I was like maybe 10 years old and uh, we were going to Florida and, and my dad had rented a condo and it was right on the beach. And I was, you know, um, a husky kid. I was kind of self-conscious. I was kind of introverted. And the flight actually like ended up losing our luggage. And so we went like three and a half days with like no swimsuits. It was the middle of winter. So we were all wearing like really heavy clothes on the plane. And so I was just kind of holed up in this condo with literally nothing on me except for my uh, grade school backpack, which happened to have a Casio graphing calculator on it. 
Um, and so once I did my homework, uh, I kind of ran out of stuff to do cause I wasn't going to go out in the beach with like jeans and a coat. So I, uh, sat down and I spent like five, uh, not five days, three, four days teaching myself what ultimately was basically a derivative of basic. Now I, I realize now and making little games. And the first game that I made was a really obvious one, you know, guess the number too high, too low, just right. And, uh, I slowly iterate on it. I'd hand it to my dad and he'd play with it. And uh, uh, I'd get feedback from him and he'd get excited to see me, you know, doing something creative on my on my calculator. Uh, and I'd add additional features. And then, you know, eventually that just completed everything I could possibly do with that. And so I started chat tackling a, uh, you know, kind of like completely ephemeral uh, checkers game. And uh, that was the moment when I realized that, you know, uh, uh, a little bit about what programming was. And it was completely self-directed. I had zero resources. It was all trial and error. And uh, uh, little did I know that trial and error was just uh, uh, the best way for me to learn all things <laughs> in programming land. And I think that's kind of been my my uh, my motif since then and just how I learn. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's funny because that mirrors my own experience. Um, um, when I was probably 13 or 14, I bought myself a graphing calculator. You know, I was on the math team. I was a real geek. Um, but yeah, it was the same thing. I started writing programs that would help me do my homework, right? I'd program the formulas in and things like that. I didn't do any games. Dang, I should have done some games. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, oh, well, this is kind of fun. And, mm -hmm. uh, of course my, my journey diverged from there, but, uh, uh, it's interesting, you know, so that's where you started. H how do you get from there to the land of professional programming and JavaScript? Yeah, very slowly, right? I think um, I was one of those people who, 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 you know, being a geeky, nerdy person who's really into it's stereotypical, right? Into video games and into computer games, and on my computer a lot, uh, and sort of just culturally fit that, you know, stereotype uh, uh, through the '90s. That it was a no-brainer that when I went to college, I would, you know, be interested in computer science, uh, and so. I kind of, you know, without a whole lot of thought, went and signed up for a computer science degree and in the process learned that, you know, computer science does not equal application development. In fact, a lot of my professors sort of like wore as a badge of pride that, you know, the things that they were teaching me were not very practical <laughs> for building applications. Thanks, and, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All that money out the window. And so I took a $10 an hour job at my campus library. And uh, uh, there, you know, instead of doing like a lot of C and C++ and data structures and really like heavy analysis leading to really poorly factored, uh, you know, lab exercises that did completely trivial nonsense there at the library, they were asking me to build real working stuff as fast as humanly possible. Uh, they, they had this flash based citation generator and they'd asked me like, hey, can you build this for us? We have, you know, we can host PHP apps. And I had zero direction beyond that. And so without knowing how hard of a problem generating uh, citations, like for a bibliography for like research papers, how hard a problem that was or how complex the different like Chicago and MLA and APA style guides were. I just like threw my body at that and, and I wrote a 16,000 line PHP file of ifs and else's and made a big gigantic mess that I'm sure uh, uh, learned nothing from my two years of computer science at that point. But what it did was it built a working application. People could hop in for free, generate a bibliography, save it, 
you know, create, manage an account and all the sort of basic stuff you assume about a web application. And uh, it worked. I mean, it, cre- it generated gigabytes of server warnings every day. Uh, millions of people used it, but that's what got me hooked on the feedback loop of like building a web application that could just provide a free, useful service to other people. And I was starting at the complete rock bottom of just the worst factored <laughs> that it could possibly be. Uh, and so there was only, you know, uh, I could only go up from there in terms of caring about quality and learning about like, you know, better ways to design web applications. I, I want to pick at that too, because it's, it's also, again, something very similar to my own story. Um, I was a computer engineering major in college, and all of my classes, I was just like, boy, I'm tired of just, you know, building these little toys that don't mean anything. And I, I kind of took computer science and programming to be sort of this nonsensical world where you just made stuff just to make stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, then I got a job, and... um I was running a tech support department and the company wouldn't spring for the software we needed to manage the, our workload. And so we wound up building it. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it was then where it was, oh, people I know are using this and hey, it actually makes a difference. And yeah, I mean, that that was that was the thing that really got me into programming as well was just, oh, the, it, it matters and I can build stuff that helps people. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of this question was how I ultimately got to JavaScript. Right. And, yeah. and uh, uh, building a PHP app with like a, you know, if, if somebody has never done a, an old school style pre framework PHP three app, they might look at it today and actually see a resemblance like uh, syntactically to JSX and React. Right. Because in the same file, you would have a bunch of HTML and server side PHP and client side JavaScript and, of course, client side CSS. Yep. Just kind of all jumbled together in, in a nonsensical order. And uh, your brain, uh, these were the first isomorphic applications, right, because your brain had zero perception of what was happening on which, uh, which machine, <laughs> the server or the front end. And, uh, uh, you know, obviously that needed to be detangled. And so my relationship with JavaScript at the time was like most people in whatever that was, 2003, um, was, was pretty fraught because it was a really limited language. Tools like Prototype and jQuery didn't exist yet. Um, but what I found was that over time, slowly, JavaScript just became the path of least resistance for me to solve interesting problems for people. And and the way that it did that was like I was in like all these jobs that were very waterfall, very like top down hierarchical control. Um, I didn't have a lot of autonomy. Like, for instance, there was this one Java shop that I had to get um, a, like a sign off approval from this committee on every single Java library jar that I wanted to pull into my project, even if it was just for t- <laughs> no even if it was just testing. Right. Even if it wasn't even a production dependency, they all had to approve because they were so concerned about anyone going off the reservation or anything not being completely maintainable by everybody. Um, and so when I asked them, hey, well, can I pull in this jQuery thing? They they responded, oh, that's JavaScript. Nobody cares about JavaScript. And so what I ended up building for them was, you know, a very, very early Ajax application that just used Java for services and built the entire thing soup to nuts and all of the JavaScript libraries that I felt like using and creating. Um, and that was a path to rapid productivity, right? Like I've actually like the customers were thrilled because they got an app way faster than they did through the kind of more controlled and slow way. And I was able to iterate more quickly. And of course, like when I did hand it over, they panicked, but, uh, I got, out, <laughs> I got a whole lot out of that. And the customer got a whole lot out of that. Uh, even if I did have to kind of side skirt it 
And that Wild West mentality and spirit is something that has remained in the JavaScript community. Um, and one of the things I really cherish about it, that, that there's not necessarily a right answer to do anything. Now, it's funny because you're talking about this sort of Wild West approach that JavaScript takes. But at the same time, when I asked you if there was anything else people should know about you, you were like, well, you have to do testing and you have to do or you ought to do. Maybe I should say ought to, but, you know, code quality and testing and, you know, all of these things, which to some people are going to seem like sort of the antithesis to Mm -hmm. um, Wild West and, you know doing crazy, interesting things with JavaScript. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, you know, it actually kind of gets back to how we founded our company where we, you know, we believe in freedom. (laughs) So like developers having the autonomy to make their own decisions is really valuable. They're the ones closest to the work. They know what's best typically in terms of the decisions to make about how to structure a little bit of code or a a whole architecture of an application, certainly more than some like somebody with like a capital A architect role standing back. And so what I appreciated about JavaScript in that anecdote and and forevermore uh, in my own experience is there's uh, in general a sense of 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 autonomy among, you know, people curating their own libraries, pulling in just the tools that they want to use. Um, uh, feeling like they have the ability to decide how to structure their applications. But at the same time, I think that once somebody has a lot of experience, they they might feel like, especially if they, they live solely in the JavaScript realm, like they don't have a lot of additional resources for how to get better and how to improve and how to look beyond just like their own experience to find you know, better patterns for structuring their code. And because so many people from so many different communities all contribute to JavaScript, there's so many new libraries all the time that it starts to feel like churn. Obviously, JavaScript fatigue is itself a, mm-hmm. you know, a meme um, that there's just the signal to noise ratio is a little bit off. Whereas like in a more traditional language ecosystem like a Ruby or a Java or a C Sharp, there's, you know, the the kind of like more uh, controlled half dozen or so thought leaders and big vendor and, and things move a little bit more slowly. Sure. But there's also a more coherent message about here's the things and the conventions and the idioms and the patterns that like the broader community is learning as we go. And in JavaScript, there's, uh, uh, it's more like the, the, like, like if you've ever seen like, you know, uh, grade school kids playing soccer, they're all just kind of chasing the ball in a big huddle going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And so if, if JavaScript feels more like an oscillation and, if there's something I can offer, it's to take concrete lessons that are applicable or, uh, you know, across languages about structuring code, whether it's uh, good naming, small units, whether it's about particular patterns uh, in, in object design or, or functional code or, or uh, approaches to testing, whether that's isolation testing with test-driven development or, or, or ways to have like a big full stack suite of tests that doesn't take all day to run. There's 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 valuable lessons from all these other more kind of coherent communities that that I think JavaScript can benefit from and without sacrificing autonomy. Right. You, people should have them in front of them and then choose to use them if, uh, you know, for situations where they know they want to build a maintainable application. It's, it's really interesting. And I don't know why my mind went to the place that it did. But um, the way that you were describing this reminds me of and, and I have this fascination with economics 
And I know that economics has been politicized some, and so some of the things I'm going to say are probably things that uh, some people disagree with to some degree. Um, but I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just trying to you know point out just some basic economic principles in in a market where um, you know people find new and better ways to do things, and you know those innovations. And some of those innovations are painful innovations to adopt, and some of the innovations are things that don't work out, and some of the innovations are um, things that make things much faster or much better or much easier. And, uh, you know, we see that those things get rewarded as they gain adoption and things move along. And so you can talk about things like testing and things like, um, you know, code quality, you know, uh, pairing and, you know, all of these things that, that feed into code quality. And, you know, at the same time, while you have some of these somewhat rigid things that you do, the ultimate result is that your innovations then have that higher quality benchmark to them. And so there are fewer bugs and therefore fewer inefficiencies in the system. And as these kind things kind of play in the same arena as the innovations that are going on in the community, you know, you get this really rich and interesting outcome. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really actually useful way to frame it and uh, as an analogy for what we see when you like try to make sense of the gajillion modules being put up in NPM and how they all compete for each other. Mm -hmm. Because it's a little bit like a free market and just like a real free market, like a it's not perfectly efficient because we we lack perfect information. Right. Um in reality, the the real fundamental sleight of hand that occurs that prevents, you know, just that like perfect balance of like, you know, carefully crafted code versus like, you know, uh, uh, a quick pragmatic uh, start to the application to make sure that you're like, you know, delivering on time and not over architecting stuff. Right. There's so there's this balancing act for sure that exists. The problem, I think, is that businesses still don't understand what software is and they just see it as this gigantic black hole that costs them a ton of money. And whether or not they're going to have a successful outcome or an unsuccessful outcome in most business people, non-technical minds, like they still base that on mostly arbitrary stuff, you know? And so you, we, we have status symbols of like, you know, uh, who can growth hack bro down kill slash crush stuff in one coast of the country. <laughs> I love it. And on the other coast, you know, like uh, all sorts of, you know, like agencies like mine, even like we develop a reputation through lots and lots of client work so we can build up a portfolio and lots of references, because that's another marker that businesses use to try to figure out something's uh, a safe bet when they're buying something that they don't understand. But there's a I think a an opportunity there for kind of charlatans to come in and just prioritize, you know, uh, pace of delivery at all costs. Right. So like business person comes in, they want to build a thing, they want to know how much it's going to cost. And somebody like me who cares a lot about code quality and maintainability, I'll ask them, well, do you want it to be maintainable long term? And they'll say, yes, of course. And I'll say, well, it'll probably end up costing this much and take six months. But surely someone somewhere is going to say, well, you know, I can just take a yeoman generator and like slap together a, 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 an Angular or React app in a weekend. And so it'll take, you know, three weeks. And so to the business person who doesn't know any differently, like to them, what I just said sounds insane now. Right. Uh -huh, right. Uh, and and uh, they lack the information of like, you know, like the the intrinsic qualities of the code and how that's going to, you know, set them up for failure. So it's almost like a like a trying to think of I, I'm failing to find a good analogy, but it's like, you know, just this 
this well that we keep coming back to, like we're addicted to speed over everything else. Um, because, uh, that, 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 that time to get started, that time to get something new out the door as fast as humanly possible is always going to sound really tempting to business people. Uh, and so you can see all of the different open sources where kind of marketplace of ideas is all focused around how quick can you get started? How quick can we build a new thing? And not so much about, you know, how easy will it be to change this thing in a year when my business actually really depends on that? <laughs> yeah. No one's asking that, right? Well, and it's it's funny too because yeah, I mean, and and we all do this to a certain degree, um, but I like to envision it where yeah, somebody goes out and they say we need this thing built, and so what they're looking for is how much does it cost to get a software, and you know, so they come to Justin and say how much does it cost to get a software, so he gives them a price and a timeline, and then they go to somebody else and they say how much does it cost to get a software, and they give them a lower price point and a shorter timeline, and in reality the two things are completely different. Um, you know, I'm, if, if I buy a car that I have to fix all the time versus I buy a car that's well built and is, you know, requires less maintenance, you know, the overall cost of owning and, and operating that thing are, are going to be completely different. And that's why people swear by particular brands and models of cars is because, you know, they, they worked out well for them in the past and yeah, that, that's what you build your reputation on, but it's also, Yeah. I, I need a software. And I mean, we do it too. I need a package that parses XML. Well, if if one package is easier to work with than the other, then it's going to save me time and money and effort over the other one. But in the end, if we're focused solely on the outcome uh, without all of the side effects, then we miss a lot of the, the other things that come with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because maybe one of those parsers is like, you know, at runtime, uh, more expensive, or maybe it has potential security gaps, right? Yeah. Um, even the uh, even is harder to use. To use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, again, it's a balancing act, right? Like sometimes uh, potential clients come to me and they're like, I need an MVP and I need out the door in 15 days. I'm like, well, you know what? We're our people care a ton about improving the state of software quality. And so they're probably going to provide more spit polish to your MVP than, you know, you necessarily should pay for because uh, uh, it will slow you down if the goal is just to validate something really quickly and you're okay with the idea of throwing it away in 30 days. Um, but but I, I, I think that these kinds of trade-offs we tend to not discuss uh, in really explicit terms. And I think that the obsession with divining the right tools and packages to make sense of this gigantic cacophony of, of, of modules that are available to developers out there, that tends to dominate 90% of the conversation because tools are concrete things with, you know, a particular, you know, flow to learning about what they do, how to use them, you know, when to use them. Uh, that's an easy message to kind of crank out on the conference circuit and in blogs and on Hacker News and more nuanced arguments about like, hey, let's all talk about like the balance and trade-offs of like, you know, the adapter pattern so that we can switch between different dependencies more easily. That stuff, you know, that's it, it's got less sizzle for sure. Yep. So we've had you on Ruby Rogues and JavaScript Jabber, and we've talked, I think, pretty well. The on Ruby Rogues, we talked about your keynote at RubyConf or RailsConf, I don't remember which. But on JavaScript Jabber, I mean, we talked about tools both times. We talked about test doubles tools, and we talked about Jasmine. So I'm wondering, you know, are, are the how do you balance? I know we've gone way off the the end of talking about JavaScript, but it's interesting. So how do you measure the practices versus the tools? And, and how do you 
reconcile to people, okay, you really ought to care about this maintenance and you should be using these kinds of tools in your development practice? You know, that's a really good question. And one of the things we talked about when, uh, if, if somebody were to go back and listen to our talk about testdouble.js with the panel, mm-hmm. uh, what they'd find is that very little of that conversation is actually about the specifics of tools. Most of it is about intent and design and the nature of different types of tests. And the reason for that is because I made a very conscious decision a couple years ago that any new open source library that I was going to write, because the thing that I have to add to the conversation is these kind of nuanced opinions about design, is going to necessarily come with a lot of opinions about design. Um, So you can do that in terms of having a very narrow API that's very focused, uh, that is... uh, you know, provide syntactic sugar for things I want you to do and syntactic vinegar for things I think you shouldn't do. Uh, and that's totally the case in testdouble.js. Uh, or there's a library like in uh, Ruby. I get I, I was very fortunate to um, uh, speak at Ruby Kaigi where I presented this new uh, Ruby gem that we wrote called Suture. And it's for uh, uh, like legacy rescue, refactoring big legacy Ruby applications. We might even port it to JavaScript. But the, the key insight I learned from that tool wasn't that you know, the tool had to work, of course, but it was that the most important thing I can give people is fantastic messages, you know, help them explain what they're seeing, help them explain, you know, for common failure modes, like how to get how to get out of them. You know, it's really I want to build tools that are a helping hand to help people along that path towards, you know, improved software design. And so I view the tools that we write at Test Double, especially the open source stuff that we really try to push as 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 kind of encoding uh, some of some of the design advice that we'd like to popularize. And it's not just like a Trojan horse because everyone likes to talk about tools. It's because like they're actually really good, you know, conversation drivers on teams. Uh, uh, when we use them and people run into friction, we can talk about it. And it's a, it's a great way. It's a great entree into uh, having those crucial conversations that, that, that help people find new and, 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 and maybe more productive ways to design their code. So one other thing that I want to just dig out here really quickly is that um, you've used the word um, craftsmanship. I I think you did anyway. (laughs) Um, But I know that there's a software craftsmanship movement out there. And I I remember hearing a lot more about it uh, longer ago, uh, maybe less about it nowadays. But, uh, you know, what's been your involvement with that movement? Because it seems like what you're talking about and some of the ideas that they had are very closely related, if not the same. Yeah. In fact, uh, it's a little funny. I mean, so there's a conference series called Software Craftsmanship North America, and a handful of agencies like ourselves and Eighth Light care a lot about this. And so we've participated in a bunch of those conferences. In fact, uh, it's been in uh, Los Angeles the last two years on USC's campus, uh, and I, I was fortunate to speak both both of the most recent years. So it still exists. Uh, it's, uh, you know, like I said, less sizzle, uh, more kind of, you know, the, 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 the deeper lessons that we've learned through, you know, full careers in software land. Um, I jokingly actually, if, and my talk from that conference is online, it's called how to scratch an itch in 200 repos or less. Uh, it's up on our blog. And one of the things I mentioned in that blog piece, that's kind of like talking or excuse me in that, in that, uh, video is, the software craftsmanship movement started in the Midwest in a lot of ways. Uh, and I think 
I jokingly refer to what I do as like Midwestern programming sometimes. Uh, uh, and it, I guess if you look at our staff too, most of them are in the flyover states. And and a big reason for that is that the companies here aren't typically VC-backed startups and they aren't typically like financial institutions that are just so flush with cash that they don't care how much software costs. Uh, it's a lot of big blue chip companies of business people who, like I referred to earlier, are just kind of confused about the return on investment. That, that, that they might make off of investing in uh, some software to help them solve a problem. And what I love about the communities that I play with, play in, you know, in these non-coastal cities uh, and the business people that I do meet and get to talk to is that it, it's a healthy pressure on software developers to actually be able to answer the question of, you know, how long is this going to take to build? How expensive is it going to be to maintain? Like, not just thinking about the capital expense of building the thing, but also the operational expense of owning it forever. And uh, that's why, you know, you see a lot of people who care about test-driven development and behavior-driven development, uh, why you see a lot of people who, like, you know, work on books about object-oriented design, domain-driven design, come out of those, you know, more uh, blue-chip, more enterprisey, maybe less uh, uh, less exciting you know, less, less, less well-known applications, uh, because, because that pressure has led us towards trying to figure out how to build genuinely high quality software that's going to be able to be changed for a long time. Whereas I don't think that pressure is quite as, um, apparent, uh, or urgent, uh, out West or out East. So one other thing I just want to, uh, drive at here a little bit is, you know, we've talked about the idea of well, well-crafted software. And, you know, that it's easy to change and easy to maintain. What I'm wondering is, do you feel like there's a correlation between having well-crafted software and having a good user experience? Or are the two sort of orthogonal to each other? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, it is part of our company's message that we want to fix software for everyone. But we do spend most of our time focused on you know, making life better for developers, having like slack in the system, having like baking in continuous improvement as part of just how how teams should work, uh, as opposed to mounting, you know, technical debt and 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 too much pressure. Uh, we talk a lot about businesses like we did today. And sometimes that means that I don't um, I don't have a strong message for like how we improve things for users. But because they're downstream of all that other stuff, uh, uh, certainly when things are going badly upstream, they end up in a way worse spot, right? Because like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's very difficult to prioritize user experience when you have a dysfunctional team, uh, when you've got a buggy code base, or when you have uh, managers and product owners who fundamentally don't understand how software works. And unfortunately, that describes like 90% of software out there. <laughs> and so if we want to make better user experiences, I think that's a a prerequisite problem that we have to solve. I realize there's a ton of like very awesome people and UX is its own like, you know, uh, uh, school and discipline. Uh, but most of the UX people I know are mostly just traffic t- cops trying to make the best of a bad situation on, on broken teams. Um, and so our focus is to like help those teams get better. Uh, and uh, we have learned a lot from, from a lot of our, our friends in the UX community. Uh, about about how to make uh, applications that are better to use, but they deal with a lot of the same sort of signal to noise that I was talking about. For instance, instead of building things that are actually genuinely usable to help uh, users actually accomplish what they're trying to do, there's this obsession with A/B testing for conversion and flipping people as fast as possible and uh, keeping people's eyeballs glued to you know a timeline or a feed as long as possible, even if it's at, to the detriment of that. Uh, you know, person's uh, ability to just get done what they want to get done. Uh, so 
Uh, it 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 has a it, you know it's a rich field. It's got all of its own problems as well uh, that, that 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 need to be solved. But uh, uh, if I if I can walk away from my career just having made life better for a lot of developers uh, and helped a lot of business people understand how software works, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be pretty proud about that too. Nice. Well, let's let's head back over to JavaScript land. Um, so you talked about that app that was the Ajax app that you built totally in, in jQuery and then it backed up onto Java. Um, how has your journey within JavaScript gone from there? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, we were very early to a lot of the different, um, front end frameworks because we were trying to build kind of like fat client applications, um, in first, you know, hand rolled frameworks built on top of prototype and jQuery, um, you know, back, I'm thinking like 2006, 2007, um, then when we had the opportunity to, you know, find like frameworks, like, like, like Sammy JS was a little like Sinatra, like provided like a routing layer, uh, Aaron Quint had written that, uh, and that led to other tools that were similar, like backbone. Uh, so, so, so I kind of followed the, you know, same kind of framework fury that, that, that most of us did with backbone leading to like a whole bunch of derivatives, like spine, um, uh, ultimately getting excited about a lot of the really more ambitious ones like, uh, you know, objective J and cappuccino and, uh, uh, sprout core 1.0. And then of course, when Yehuda joined sprout core 2.0, which became Amber, which became Ember, um, uh, we were there too. And, uh, you know, I still, to this day, love Ember and think it's a fantastic solution to a lot of problems, uh, especially if you're but it requires that your team like, uh, uh, you know, swallow the learning curve because it's big and complex and embeds a lot of conventions. And so it's right. not for everybody, but like, they're just like us. We're trying to fight against this grain of, uh, uh, faster is always better. Right. Because I just asked on Twitter the other day, you know, uh, uh, who, who's got like a year now that you might have a year, year old react app, how does it compare to your angular or your Ember or, or other frameworks that you had? And a lot of people said that their React apps are better, but you know, of course, I had a lot of Ember people chime in because that's what Ember exists for: is to have these multi-year applications continue to be healthy and maintainable and upgradable over time. Uh, a lot of them, you know, obviously took the opportunity to mention that. But at the same time, you know, uh, uh, the con em Ember tends not to like you know jump out ahead and lead and innovate on you know, kind of like novel ideas, rather they, they'd rather observe and, and incorporate like, like they did with uh, virtual DOM stuff and their Glimmer engine. So, so all of our people, because they're really excited technologists, uh, you know, we're really early on with like React and Flux and then Redux, which is, you know, I think table stakes for, for most front end developers. But nowadays, you know, when I, when I talk to our staff, like there's, our agents are super excited about Vue. Uh, a lot of them are getting real serious about using Elixir and Elm uh, as kind of like a front end back end stack. And, and they love that. Um, and unfortunately, uh, if anything, at this point in my journey, I, I, I've accrued just enough cynicism that I'm not, you know, spending every, every night and weekend checking out the latest framework because you start to see after a certain amount of time, the same, uh, uh, the same lessons be relearned or re-encoded uh, uh, from framework to framework and, and, and all the lines start to blur after a little while. So I, I feel like my stodginess is almost complete. <laughs> complete stodginess unlocked. I can just imagine, right? 
Um, yeah, well, yeah, I'm sure that's going to be a real attractive thing to say to the say, say, say to the audience at home. But I, uh, my hope is that I can take that perspective and 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 find a useful message for for people who are just trying to navigate a course for themselves in this really really busy, full, complex landscape. Yeah, but the thing is, is that you pick up you pick up uh, practices and tools. Um, well, practices the same way as tools. It's the things that alleviate pain that remove problems that make it easier for you to solve specific problems. So if you're working through some system and uh, you're realizing, okay, um, you know, I'm going to be a little bit stodgy on the way that we do things here. And then you realize, you know, it's solving a particular problem. Are you being stodgy or are you being smart? Um, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, you know, yeah, we have to try things out and we have to, experiment with things. I mean, you listed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different um, JavaScript frameworks that you tried out along the way, you know, ending in Ember. And, you know, you're doing what works, you're doing what makes sense. But at the same time, you're willing to experiment and find new ways of doing the thing that you want to do. I think that actually what you just hit on is a really... A really true and useful point, because what happens to most people over the course of their career is that they define themselves by the bad experiences that they had. So like maybe they used, um, you know, a bunch of small libraries and they got fed up and now they want a convention based like heavy framework that kind of solves everything. Um, but, but the way that they got to that point was to kind of like shake their fists in the air and shout, never again, am I going to run into this particular problem? And I'm going to solve this by increasing the like floor of complexity that I, that, that I'm going to adopt on any single project, even when that might not be on its own merits, the best answer. And there's a, there's a rigidity that comes through that, um, that experience and that, that disposition towards running into problems that can lead to a, a place where people, you know, later in their careers are just like less flexible, less willing to change, less willing to negotiate or become blind to, you know, new innovations. And so one of my favorite things about kind of coming of age as Agile was coming together through extreme programming was to continually embrace change, to travel light, to, to acknowledge that, you know, yes, I'm learning a lot about practices, but I need to, uh, one of my, one of my old buddies, Nilanjan, who worked at, um, uh, TypeSafe, the the Scala and Akka company, he had this practice when he was consulting. He would go into a team and he would, even though he had a million opinions about everything, he would he would practice the null methodology, which is you'd start on day one and have zero practices, zero tools, and just do the very littlest that you could to get something into production. And slowly, as patterns emerge, then start to apply that the experience, whether that was through patterns and design, or whether that was through tools that you knew could, that could solve the problem. But but that reset was a a, a source of renewal for himself uh, and and the teams that he worked on, so that they didn't just fall into these over-architected, you know, overly defensive modes of trying to control and prevent every bad thing that had ever happened to them before, because that just leads to to um, you know, back in economic terms, uh, a lack of mobility, a lack of being able to respond to changing, you know, I guess, market conditions. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, I, I think I have a little bit of, um, advantage in this because I'm not actively building a large long-term project, but yeah, I tend to try out new things and see if they 
give me some advantage over what I'm currently using. And so I've been playing with things like React and stuff like that instead of defining everything by the, oh, I've had this problem with Angular, so now I'm going to go find something new. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, and- j- just getting to that point where it's, okay, you know, I've built on what I've got to the point where now I have something that, at least for now, works better than anything else before it. Yeah, and, you know, actually, it's not... <sighs> To anyone listening and feeling like this discussion of tools versus craft as as being potentially, you know, uh, uh, disparate, it's not like we should always be shopping 100 <laughs> percent of the time. Like if you're following the news, uh, you know, if you're spending 10 percent of your weeks just kind of trying to keep up with everything that's happening out there, you're kind of always in like a, a tool evaluation mindset. And there is no shame at all in just shutting that off for a little while and just being productive, like whether that means building applications and focusing on like the intrinsic nature of the applications that you're building or focusing on like the business domain of the like the actual problems that you're trying to solve with software. At a certain point, it makes sense to, uh, you know, in a sort of a punctuated rhythm, you know, uh, absorb new outside information, try new things, pause, you know, experience a period of productivity where you're learning, you know, other aspects of software than just like what the best tool for the job is uh, and then open open uh, open the borders again to 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 new ideas so that those can come in and i think that 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 rhythm in a person's career tends to get lost in how we talk about technology on twitter uh and on hacker news i really like that because then what it comes down to is okay i'm not going to worry about looking at new tools right now i'm going to get my work done and then mm-hmm. okay now we're at that point at the top of the cycle again to where I can look and see, okay, is what we're doing still the thing that makes sense? And it's exactly the same as like watching cable news every night versus, you know, maybe reading a paper once a week, right? There's a lot of back and forth and noise that ultimately doesn't, you know, nothing comes of it. And so you have to look back at that time investment and ask really like, what else could you have been doing there? Certainly when you consider the cost of context switching between, you know, what you're doing and 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 whatever's happening online. Yeah, well, and, and I find... You know, to to take this into another direction again, um, you know, I tend to do this with uh, political related news, right? Where, um, you know, I I have my set of values that I kind of follow for this, but periodically I go look and see what the quote unquote other side is talking about. And for me, it's okay. Well, what are they right about? What are they wrong about? What what am I not thinking about? Because I'm in a place where only the the echo chamber that I currently find myself in they're only talking about these issues and not these other issues. Mm -hmm. And so if you want that healthy outlook on how all of this stuff works and you want that outlook on what am I doing right? and What am I doing wrong? And and what's true and what's not true? Then yeah, you have to get out there and see what the rest of the world is doing. And I worry sometimes that if somebody is, you know, strategy for consuming JavaScript and front end and back at well, the whole world of modern web stuff. If their strategy is just to go like always adopt whatever the most popular thing of the moment is, they will have a curve over time in their career of like kind of following the zeitgeist, but they'll have robbed themselves of the opportunity to go and tackle um, uh, different ways of thinking that are never going to be the most popular way of thinking, right? Like mm-hmm. go learn a Haskell, go, go yep. try out Elm, uh, and see, and see what the, what the emphasis on types does to your brain. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, uh, uh, a lot more people talk about Ember than have actually ever tried building an Ember application. Uh, and because, <laughs> because, because there's a large learning curve, right. Or, or some people just, you know, religiously believe that frameworks, 
uh, opinionated convention-based frameworks are a bad idea. But they, they might only seem like a bad idea from a distance if you actually acclimated into one. You know, maybe you're afraid of <laughs> getting sucked in, right? So, so my hope for everyone is that they 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 try a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, so that we're all exposed to lots of stuff. Because ultimately, it's the developers today who are you know just consuming whatever the latest and greatest is, who are going to be making the next libraries and pushing us all forward. Yep, absolutely. Now we're starting to run out of time. Um, we've actually gone over the time that was scheduled, but. Um, I have another one of these interviews for Adventures in Angular in about eight minutes. So I'm going to push sure. us into the next area. We've we've talked a bit about testdoubles.js. Um, are there other areas of contribution in the JavaScript community that you want to talk about that you've done? Uh, on the spot like this, I mean, I could go up and open my uh, GitHub user and just list off the 350 repos. Um, I think that, especially given this where this conversation went, there's um, a handful of tools that, that might be interesting to look at as like a sort of an opinionated stack. Uh, so, uh, for instance, uh, uh, I also wrote a testing tool for Node.js applications called TeenyTest. Uh, and uh, the goal there was to build a completely opinionated, basically uh, unconfigurable, uh, but also API-free uh, testing CLI that would allow you to accomplish and express like everything that you could in like a really complex nested uh, testing testing library like a Mocha or a Jasmine, but with like even smaller API than something like Tape. Uh, so so when you combine things like um, uh, uh, Teeny Test and Test Double JS, uh, and uh, I'm actually blanking now. There's a third thing to this. Somebody else called it the Test Double Stack the other day, and it made me laugh because uh, uh, I never set out to do something like that. It's a uh, <laughs> it's an it's an interesting, uh, you know, articulation of lots of years of opinions about JavaScript testing. Um, similarly, I think if anyone's um, kind of interested in sort of the more human side, soft side uh, uh, of this discussion, if you just hit up Testable's blog and look through the archives, we've got a lot of good videos out there. Um, and uh, the one that you'd, you'd, you'd referred to about our Ruby talk was called the social coding contract. And it was about mm-hmm. um, how as a human, you know, it, it is to to navigate the world of open source, especially when you want to become a maintainer. Uh, and I think, uh, unfortunately, it's still very relevant today. <laughs> it was talking about a lot of problems that turned out to be, I think, evergreen issues that that we're always going to be up against, even though it's a few years old now. Um, but but that but that's one that I think is a good would be a good continuation of this discussion for folks. Awesome. Um, so the the last question is, what are you working on now? What am I working on now? Uh, uh, Wow, this is this is going to sound super terrible and shill like, but right now I'm focused almost exclusively on consulting sales for desktop. <laughs> hey, you know what? Uh, it's it's a reality of the business. Yeah, yeah. Like I said in seasons, right now, uh, test double. Uh, uh, you know, the way we make our money is we have consultants who go and join teams and work alongside teams to just get stuff done and also be there to help facilitate continuous improvement on on Ruby, JavaScript, Go, Elixir teams. And uh, uh, we've got consultants available, which means that whatever it is I was working on, I take a pause and then I go and, you know, reach out to friends in the business community and in, the, in, in, the, in, in my open source uh, community uh, to see who, who might be looking for extra help on, on their team. So if anyone's listening uh, <laughs> and wants me to get back to working on open source stuff, there's a real quick path to that, which is help me, help me find a great project to, to, to play some of our people. 
And uh, 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 now I feel like I got I got to go take a shower because that was probably the most blatant marketing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> well, it, it makes sense. I, I have good news and bad news for you, though, and that is, is that this is probably going to come out in like two months. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully I'm not in exactly the same situation, but I'd still appreciate any help anyone could offer. <laughs> yeah, well, and the thing is, and this is uh, coming from, you know, five years of consulting experience myself. Um, it's, it's not just, Hey, let me talk you into having me come help you out, even though you don't need it. This is really a, a proposal of, Hey, look, let, let me come help you. And in return, you help me. Usually that's through monetary remuneration, but you know, and, and that way we're both happy with the arrangement. And so, you know, that, that's what sales is, uh, is negotiating that so that everybody's happy with the outcome. And yeah, um, you know, Justin really gets it as far as what code is supposed to to do and what it's supposed to look like. And and so if you're looking for some top-notch folks and you think you could benefit from what they have to offer, then, you know, go talk to them on how you can make an arrangement so that you both benefit. And yeah. with, with that, let's so, go. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> so, sorry to interrupt you. I No, yeah. I really appreciate that. But honestly, sales is a lot easier when your product kind of sells itself. We just have the best developers that I've ever worked with. Uh, the only hard part was getting them to, you know, quit, quit whatever they were doing and join up with us. Um, hey, but yeah, I want to I, I thank you and everyone listening for the time for me to just get a chance to share a little bit about my story today. I don't know if you're like me, but when I have a new idea, I probably spend an hour looking for a domain that communicates the right thing to the right people so that they know what I'm about. And that's why I picked up as a sponsor the .tech domains. And you should definitely check them out. There's never been a domain that's helped represent the tech community so well. Getting a domain that's relevant to your brand, that helps encapsulate the ethos of what you're doing is just... It's hard. And the .coms a lot of times are taken up. And so having a .tech is really, really awesome. Now, I have actually picked up devchat.tech. We have a lot of SEO behind devchat.tv, so it probably won't switch, but I wanted that out there so that people can pick it up and know that devchat is about tech. And, and I just, I love the idea. So using a .tech domain was an awesome solution for us. It's short, it's relevant to what we do. It just sticks in people's head. It's a natural fit for anything technology. So if you're a programmer, if you're working on a tech startup or an open source library or things like that, it's definitely a great way to go. In fact, a lot of other companies have actually been moving over to .tech. So CES, which is a conference that I go to every year and uh, go check out all the new technology, they switched over to CES.tech from CESweb.org. Viacom has Viacom.tech to host their tech division. Intel chose Insight.tech for their latest initiative. Startups on a tech domain have raised more than a billion dollars on a .tech domain. So if you want your own .tech domain, go to go.tech slash MRS and use the coupon code MRS.tech and get a one-year tech domain at $9.99 and a five-year .tech domain at $49.99. Now, if you use this coupon code to get a .tech domain, tweet at me at CMAXW and let me know what .tech domain you got so that I can shout it out on Twitter. Uh, I'd really love to see what you're doing with this. And I think it's just a great product. So go check it out at go.tech slash MRS and get this deal today. Um, let's go ahead and do some picks really fast. Uh, do you have some things that you wanted to shout out about? Oh, goodness. I have not thought about this in advance. I will shout out to USB-C, the emerging standard for, for, for how cables are going to look in a few years, because I am like staring at a pile of like 15 little Anker um, 
cables and adapters and I'm, I'm about to take a 12 day trip to Costa Rica and my goal was to have every cable be a USB-C cable <laughs> uh, because I got the new MacBook and I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to bring a single converter and I am going to fall short of that because I carry an Apple Watch and there is no Apple Watch charger available uh, with a USB-C cable. So I am uh, very often I, I joke that people are like too too eager to embrace the future before it's ready, especially when it comes to JavaScript. And here I am, you know, getting way ahead of myself with uh, the all USB-C future. So shout out to USB-C. Hopefully in two months when this uh, podcast airs, uh, uh, you are closer to a reality. <laughs> nice. I was going to say, um, the, the people who own the new MacBook Pro or MacBook Air, they, they know all about USB-C because they had to go buy uh, dongles and stuff. Um so I'm going to shout out about a couple of things myself. Um, the first one that I'm going to shout out about, and it's funny because I do so many of these that I don't know which things I've shouted out about already. So if I've already talked about this, uh, I apologize. But I, I realized a while back that my Heil PR40 microphone was dying. Um, it, it only took me about six months to figure out that that's why I sounded terrible on the podcasts. Um, so I got a new mic. It's an Electrovoice RE20. Um, it's It's right up there, you know, price wise and quality wise with the high LPR 40, but I, I absolutely love it. So, uh, I'm going to pick that. Um, the other thing I'm going to pick is lately I've been watching Battlestar Galactica, the 2003, um, series, not the 1979 or 1980 series. Um, but anyway, I've, I've, I love the show. I've watched it two times all the way through, and this is my third time through, um, I watched Stranger Things on Netflix before, and I liked it, so I guess I'll pick that too. But afterward, I was like, okay, I just need something else to watch, and I'm, I'm really enjoying that. So I'm going to pick that. And then the last thing I'm going to pick is um, I'm a big fan of Brandon Sanderson, and his books, not all of them, but a lot of them fall into what he calls the Cosmere, which is sort of the universe – they, they all take place on different planets within the same galaxy or universe. And eventually he's been talking like he's going to have some crossover between the different magic systems and characters. Um, and it's a really interesting way of writing fantasy. And so anyway, um, there's a book called Arcanum Unbounded. And it's a series of short stories and novellas from across the Cosmere. And it comes with explanations of different parts of the Cosmere. Um, there are some spoilers in there for some of his books. So the short stories happen after, during, or around the books. He also has characters that jump between the different worlds. Um, so anyway, uh, this kind of gives you a better view into what the Cosmere is. So if you're a fan of Brandon Sanderson, then definitely go pick those up. Just keep in mind that uh, he does tell you this contains some spoilers for these books. Uh, you'll probably want to go read those books first, but. Uh, Super good stuff. I, I just love that stuff. So um, I'll pick that as well. Um, Justin, if people want to hire you or see what you're working on these days or um, see what ramblings you're putting on Twitter, what, what do they do? Well, the Twitter ramblings are free. Uh, uh, and you can just follow my last name. It's just uh, at Searles, S-E-A-R-L-S. Uh, or you can find me at Justin at testdouble.com. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, shoot me a little note. And, uh, if you found anything at all to be interesting in this conversation, I'd love to talk to you about it. All right. Terrific. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, we'll have another story next week.
Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.